welcome all. Uh, <clears throat> very good to have you with us again. Uh, well, good to be together. God willing, we'll be uh, even uh, more together, uh, actually meeting most of us at least in the same space, hopefully in the not too distant future. <clears throat> I always find that Bible study when everybody or at least most people are in the same room is always uh, more satisfying uh, than it is when you, or most things are in fact more satisfying than when you're simply working through a screen. But we thank God for the ability to meet even uh, even when we can't be together <clears throat> using technology. Uh, today, uh, we will be uh, continuing our study of uh, Genesis 9. Uh, last time we um, uh, started uh, Genesis 9, uh, but did not uh, finish. And we've got uh, two sections uh, left uh, or, uh, to cover before we get to the end of the narrative concerning the flood <clears throat> and its aftermath. But before we do that, let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are able again to meet together to uh, study your word together. And again, we ask that you bless us with the wisdom from your Holy Spirit. That we would uh, learn to understand and to know your word more profoundly. And that that understanding and knowledge uh, would strengthen in us faith in your promises. Hope in the future. And a love for you and for our neighbors. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good. So, a quick uh, recap of uh, what we were looking at uh, last time we met, which is uh, at the end of uh, March. Uh, so, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, Noah and his sons and his sons' wives with him and the animals have come off the ark. And... Noah has uh, made a, a, a thanksgiving offering or sacrifice to God. And now the blessing that God pronounces on Noah has begun. We have we didn't finish the whole of God's blessing with Noah, of Noah. <clears throat> but uh, we heard that God blesses Noah. And uh, if you recall, we made the point specifically that uh, the blessing on Noah was... Uh, an echo of the creation. So this uh, is the the life, if like the post diluvian as a, a life, life after the flood, is a refreshing or rejuvenation of God's uh, creation, creation that had been spoiled by sin, and therefore <clears throat> the wording that is used uh, makes that connection very clear. And um, we spent some time looking at the whole question of blood and the prohibition of blood. So now God gives the animals, uh, as well as the plants for, uh, Noah to eat, which is obviously of, uh, if like nutritional benefit to, uh, Noah and his descendants. However, it is also a mark and a sign, uh, that there is, there remains, if like enmity between, uh, humans and, and creation. Uh, in a way that did not exist at the beginning. And the blood of animals can be shed, but the blood of man may not be shed. 
The blood of animals may be shed, but not consumed. The blood of uh, humans may not even be uh, shed. And <clears throat> and that's where, where, where we are uh, coming to now. So uh, let's read uh, just from verse 6 uh, to verse 11. <coughs> Whoever gets there first. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Thank you. So <laughs> the first uh, section of that, just the first uh, few verses, six, seven, six and seven, uh, has uh, two sides to it. There's a, a warning and a prom- uh, and uh, and a command. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in His own image. And we discussed this last time already, but the the the, the fact that uh, the scriptures. Uh, prescribe when 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 the Bible does talk about uh, punishment for particular crimes uh, in the Old Testament law, not only the law of Moses but also here. And remember, this is a covenant to Noah with Noah and a commandment to Noah, which is therefore for all mankind, since uh, all mankind is descended from Noah. <clears throat> this um, is uh, the the crime of murder uh, is. Uh, associated with the punishment of execution. In other words, a life, uh, it's a life crime, uh, capital crime rather. And the reason is that God made man in his own image. Every man, every person is made in God's image and therefore there is no, uh, if you like, there's no, um, uh, retribution or compensation that is adequate, uh, for that for the uh, destruction of life that is made by God in his own image, except life to be taken. Um, the, the whole issue of capital no. punishment is... Uh, the whole issue of capital punishment is, uh, is somewhat controversial uh, in our day. For example, I think I mentioned this last time, but the Roman Catholic Church, for example, uh, officially is opposed to capital punishment as being incompatible with the sanctity of life. This passage seems to suggest that if you want to use the phrase sanctity of life, which, by the way, is not a biblical phrase, the Bible speaks in terms of image uh, of God, <clears throat> suggests that it's specific, specifically because of the sanctity of life that uh, capital punishment for murder exists. I don't know if does anybody want to uh, uh, 
comment or, or, or ask about that? Oh, if we're not allowed to kill somebody, I've always wondered why we're allowed to kill them if someone thinks that they've killed somebody else. As in, why would, uh, why would, uh, two wrongs make a right? Right. No, that, well, that's, the, this is kind of the, the, the big issue. Is, is it a matter of, uh, adding a wrong to a wrong? Um, I mean, I, I again, I and mean, this is some, uh, we, we sort of, uh, talked about this. So I mentioned this last time, but I mean, when, when, uh, uh Martin Luther was quite lecturing on this passage, uh, in the late 1530s, or uh, he 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 commented uh, that by this command, God establishes temporal government. Um, <clears throat> uh, in in other words, there is a distinction to be made between uh, how shall we put this? The distinction to be made between how individuals uh, relate to one another. And then how uh, temporal authority or governing authority uh, relates to people, and it's the case, you know, for example, that you know, if you if you have uh, you know you you've earned some money or you you have income from somewhere, um, whatever I think of how you spend it and where how it should be spent, I have no authority whatsoever to touch your income. You can give it to me if you want, <laughs> but I can't take it from you. And there's not there is there is if I do take it from you, I will be punished. And yet, what happens to our income? Well, the first thing that happens to is taxes taken off. Now, and, and if I, in fact, if I steal money from you, uh, in a particular way, I might, you know, I'll be, I will be forced to pay it back to you and I might have to pay a fund, which is that the government takes money from me for having taken money from you. That two wrongs making a right as well. <laughs> or, and I think I used this example last time. You know, if I lock you up uh, in, 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 my, in a coal cellar uh, because you've been naughty and bad, the first thing that will happen is the police will come and they will lock me up because they're locking up is wrong and therefore we're going to lock you up. That two wrongs as well. And of course, the answer is that those are not equivalent actions. What I do to you, one individual to another, is one thing. What the government or governing authorities do um, to uh, those people under their authority is another thing. There's a, if you like, there's an individual morals or individual uh, rules for individual behavior, individual to individual, private citizen to private citizen. And then there's a different set of uh, rules and regulations for how public uh, public authorities deal with those under their authority it's the same sort of thing i mean we, you know what parents are allowed to do to children is not what children are allowed to do to other children so i can i can tell uh, a child of mine to go make their bed but they can't tell their brother or sister to go make their bed because i have authority over my children but they are simply relating to one another as as equals and therefore so when it comes to things like imprisonment or in the imposition of fines or restrictions on people's liberties we are not you know individual people and the private citizens don't have the right to do that to one another because we are all you know equally uh you know equally uh 
citizens, if you like, or members of society, but also equally children of God uh, and creatures of God. However, God has, for the sake of good order, God has established authority to, put it in blunt terms, to enforce these things, to make sure that these things actually happen, and to for the protection of life, and for the protection of property, for the protection of marriage, for the protection of people's reputation. If you go Commandments 5, 6, 7, and 8, you know, life, marriage, property, reputation. And for those commandments to be meaningful in a sinful world where people are not naturally going to obey, uh, there is, therefore, there, there are also consequences that are established, like sanction. And so if you steal, you have to make restitution, you have to repay. If you damage, you have to compensate. And what God here says is that, and if you take the life of another person, you must pay for it with your own life, because that's the only proportionate restitution. So it's not that they, they're not equivalent actions at all. One is the crime, the other one is a consequence of the crime or a sanction on the crime. Mike? Well, thousands of people are being killed in wartime. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Mm. Yes. And, and yeah. war, war is another example. I mean, uh, you know, if that, again, the, if I think of, you know, the, the Governments uh, <clears throat> have not only the authority. Sorry, sorry, Tapani. We've got our daughter from America. She's been in hospital, and oh. I must speak to her. I'll okay. come back. We'll see you later. Give her a yeah. Thank you. Um. So, um, you know, army, armies, and, and and military force and police force are another example where they have both the duty and the and the right to use force for the common good. And so armies exist, ostensibly, at least they ought to exist, for the defense of uh, of the, uh, the um, citizens of the country. Uh, you know, for example, the, uh, the uh, our Israeli army is actually called the Israeli Defense Force. And we have a Ministry of Defense. It used to be called the War Office. And is rebranded the Ministry of Defense. And the Ministry of Defense is, at least in my books, is a, is a better name for it because that's what these things for. So in order to protect the country and its, re- its residents and its citizens, uh, from aggression, uh, and from, from looting and theft and all sorts of other dangers, uh, the governing authorities, in, the, in our case, the government has the right to use force to defend its citizens, uh, so that they are, they are safe. And again, when a soldier goes on duty, and uses violence in the course of the duty. They're not the equivalent of a hooligan who goes out with his shotgun uh, or his baseball bat and starts hurting people because they're not operating their own person. They're operating under the authority which has been given to them by God, which according to Romans 13, governing authorities carry the sword. That's, you know, it doesn't, you know, the governing authorities do not carry the sword in vain. So the, this, this, what, you know, the, the phrase is monopoly and violence. I don't know if that makes sense as an explanation, but I hope it does, Barbara. Um, yeah. Well, I just think it's very complex, isn't it, really? <laughs> it is on one level, on another it isn't. I mean, the, 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 the simplicity of it is this. Individuals acting in their own name do not have a, uh, have a simple command, love your neighbour as yourself, and that's the end of that. Uh, and, you know, do, do to others as you wish they would do to you, turn the other cheek, if, if, if uh, and so on. 
the governing authorities who stand in authority over all people for the protection of all people for the society of the communities uh have uh means and uh, if you like have have the the right to use uh forceful methods for the common good to impose fines to pay to demand taxes uh to place restrictions on on individual freedoms to imprison people and at least in principle according to this commanded here also to execute people uh mari well just an example isn't it that in the army too you have very strict rules like e- even if during the war time you have to stick to the rules you can't just kill anybody you know in case for instance if you take a prisoner so i think even there you know you have an order what you can do and what you cannot do mm-hmm. yeah absolutely i mean it's mm-hmm. it's not it's not can't blush to do whatever you like mm-hmm. there is a i mean this is this is always you know often when teaching about these things people often say well what about what about uh if your you know children must obey their parents what if your parents are telling you to uh not go to church or telling you to go pocket, picking pockets or throw uh, stones through a window what about if the government is is hitler or stalin and the answer is very simple god has given these authorities but those authorities are specific and they have their limits and god is overall so if god says you shall not steal and dad says you must steal well then he said well who do i obey more these two authorities in other words dad is has overstepped his ba- the boundaries of his authority has gone beyond what he's authorized to do when he does that you know if the israeli defense force defends the Isra- uh, israelis from uh, from harm all well and good if they then decide to take the same force and say and, and let's go and take over a neighboring country because they have oil or diamonds or gold they are then now acting beyond their authority and they've gone beyond what it, what has been assigned to them by god they're no longer defending citizens they're no longer establishing righteousness and punishing wickedness they're now actually committing wickedness or if if hitler or stalin comes along and says you must denounce all jewish people that you know so that we can take them away to camps um and god says you shall have your neighbors yourself you shall defend the defenseless and so on then you can, we know okay in this case the government has overstepped the boundaries of its authority and we must not only not only do we not need to obey we must not obey because they are they are they've set themselves over against god if they tell us to pay our taxes or to stay on the right side of the road or obey the speed limit we do that happily regardless of whether it's hitler or mother teresa as the head of state but the moment that they go beyond their authority we must disobey dave Yeah, I'm just thinking of the whole area of abortion. Um, it says whoever sheds the blood of of man, you know, to me, man also includes the unborn child in the womb, is worthy of defence and protection. Mm. And then it's just tied in with verse seven because um, the command is, "You be fruitful and multiply." And you know, if you kill babies in the womb, then you're not free to be fruitful and multiply. You know, there's a connection there. Yes. And so sometimes we just think verse six. Oh yes, uh, we go out. Someone, one man kills another man with a sword or a gun or whatever. But so many killings are happening inside a womb by an adult, and it's just um, you know from a Christian perspective, it's it's a terrible situation. Mm-hmm. But governments seem to endorse it and promote it, and I just think, well, how do we as Christians respond to that? Uh by struggling against it any which way we can mm-hmm. speak for the you know speak for the defenseless pray for them and mm-hmm. you know go on marches uh 
if if you know if, if that helps. Uh, and uh, you know if 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 given the opportunity to uh, legislate or uh, or or at least to uh, vote for this policy or that policy or this politician or that politician to use whatever authority we have uh, between us, or oh, sorry, that we have uh, um, entrusted to us uh, to speak up for those who are being, you know, who are who are in danger or whose whose lives are being discarded like this. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, abortion is it, and and some and also uh, <clears throat> uh, particularly abortion, but also uh, also some other forms of modern kind of euphemisms for like euthanasia and so on yeah. uh, they are they are crimes against both the prohibition on the Shani blood and crime against the command to be fruitful or multiply uh, Roseman well years and years ago several people were hung and they were the wrong people when they found out later this was, wasn't that one of the reasons why hanging was stopped because it was killing innocent people yep I know this is the thing. You know, there are two different two different things. There's the principle and there's the practice. And so, you know, if you ask me what my personal opinion on capital punishment is, my personal opinion is that it is not immoral, but I do think it's impractical. Uh, not because it always was, but because of what the complexities of society. I mean, there are cases where, you know, which are really clear cut, mm. and then there are things that are not are not clear cut. And there have been too many cases, uh, and mm. which, uh, where, you know, there have been miscarriages of justice, um, in a way that I suppose, I think to put it, put it very simple terms is that the, 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 the size complexity, uh, of modern sort of, uh, societies, um, means that it's much harder, I think, to, to, uh, administer Capital punishment in a way that is safe because it's obviously irreversible. I mean, if you, you know, if, if, if people are put away in, in prison falsely, there's at least the hope that they can be released and it's not the end. I mean, it's, it's still terrible, but it's, it's not absolutely final. Whereas, of course, with capital punishment, it is, uh, mm. is absolutely final. So yes, that is, that's one reason. It's not the only reason why capital punishment was, uh, was outlawed in this country, but that's one of them. <coughs> Go on. Can you still be hung for treason? There's, you cannot be hanged for anything. Oh. Capital punishment is, is off the books. I, I suspect that if you go through the way that British law works, if you go through all the books, you might find things, you know, old laws which prescribe capital punishment, but, the, but they are all, you know, there, there is no crime in this country of any, for which uh, you can be executed. Execu- you know, capital punishment has been abolished. Just a yeah. quick thought. Um, when you read through, say, Deuteronomy or Leviticus, you come across situations where maybe a child says, you know, if your son has been really rebellious and you brought him to the elders and things and he doesn't, you can stone him or kill him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you get certain instances like that. But are those kind of ended because that was belonging to the Old Testament Israelites? And, and is this command in Genesis 9, is it relating to the whole world? Is that why we, we're still saying, um, you can't have capital punishment because it's, uh, it's relates to the whole world. And the other instances in Leviticus are specific to a group of people in a certain time of history. 
<clears throat> yeah, that's a good question. Um, there isn't a single instance in the Old Testament, I, if, unless I'm, my memory fails me, where that particular commandment to hand over your rebellious son to the elders is actually enacted. Um, but, um, yeah, there is a distinction. There are certain things that are like pre-Mosaic and things that are in the, in the covenant uh, are part of the law of Moses. And so uh, that particular one... Um, I haven't thought about it particularly, but I, I would say that there are certain commandments which seem quite practical things, which uh, are linked very much to the calling of Israel to be a holy people. Yeah. So it's an application, it's like an extreme extreme application of the fourth commandment, honor your father and your mother. Uh, that, you know, the God, the people of Israel are to be a nation that is different from the surrounding nations, is distinct, and therefore, and, and part of the distinction is holiness, and therefore there are commandments like that. Uh, some, some commandments which don't seem to us, in, you know, you know, there are various things that seem to us odd, you know, um, Mike and Avril, you, we, you know, we've talked before about the whole mixing of meat and milk, you know, you should not boil it, uh, boil a, 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 a kid in his mother's milk and that kind of thing. So, well, how, where does that come from? And, and there are, but there are, without going down that particular commandment, but it's just an example of commandments that are given to distinguish the Israelites as a holy nation in one way or another. Um, I think the th- rule of thumb is that unless, unless that the law of Moses does not apply unless it is, uh, kind of, a ra- if like ratified for all people, all times elsewhere. That's the kind of basic, basic rule of thumb to, uh, you know, Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses in his entirety. I mean, he, he be, essentially, he became the, he took, he, though he was the obedient son, he took his, our rebellion on him and he was put to death. For our disobedience. And so he became the, you know, he took our place as the son who was put to death uh, for disobedience. Let's move on. Um, I wanted to stop at that uh, because it's, it's obviously a, a, a contentious issue. Uh, but, um, <clears throat> the, the real meat and substance of, of this chapter is in what comes now from verse eight onwards. God said to Noah and to his sons with him. Now, first of all, that phrase to Noah and to his sons with him. Uh, in other words, this is not just this is not specific to Noah, but this is to uh, Noah and his descendants, and therefore to all people. Um, the "you" in the verses that follow uh, nine, uh, ten, and eleven is plural, uh, or as they would say in Texas, "y'all." Um, Y'all, yeah. y'all, come yeah. y'all come as opposed you. to as opposed to you, you, uh, uh, you know, thou, uh, you, the individual. So this is uh, uh, spoken to all of them. I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. And you see, there's kind of there's a the the style is emphatic. He's kind of God lists everyone and then he gives at the end also a summary of everything that he has listed. I established established my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now, the word covenant is very, very, very important in the Bible. Okay, now the word covenant is in fact, and it's, it's become a kind of, in English, it's become a little bit of a, uh, a kind of a word, biblish word, in other words, a word that we only use in, in a 
in a Christian context uh, and, and drawn out of the Bible. But of course, I mean, some of you will remember uh, that there were such things as covenants uh, in British taxation not very long ago. You could make a covenant, uh, for example, for your key given to the church. Did they used to have this here, Mike? Uh, so yeah. Church, yeah, covenants. You can make covenants. Um, yes. All being replaced by uh, gift aid now. But uh, <clears throat> uh, the covenant, what is a covenant? In, a promise. In a promise. Uh, yes, but what kind of, the specific kind of promise? A legal promise. Yes, and? An agreement. It's mutual. It's usually, covenants are usually mutual. You know, it's, it's a, like a like a treatise or a deal, you know, where uh, we, which is um, established uh, between two parties. So the covenant, uh, you know, when when it came to giving to church, you made a covenant that you would gave so much, and then the government's response was, and we would take some of that, and you know, for the benefit of the that would then benefit the benefit the recipient as well. So you made a you if you you held up your end, they held up their end. Yeah. And that's kind of how what the word covenant tends to mean. Um, in the New Testament, it's translated into Greek with a word that is actually more properly translated as testament, um, which uh, is a is a bit of a conundrum for Bible translation sometimes because, for example, in Hebrews, particularly in Hebrews, uh, where the word is used and and then is used more in the sense of testament referring to kind of last will and testament kind of language and say well how do you do we translate this covenant or is testament because they don't quite mean the same thing because of course testament is a one-sided promise where you leave something and you simply set out here is my money and i'm going to leave it to or uh, like in a first century you might say in my testament you know when i die i want my state to go to my eldest son i want my wife to have 200 pounds a year and i want and all my slaves shall be freed or something like that. And you're simply <laughs> giving. Now, is, are we dealing here with a, with a treaty, with a mutual agreement, or are we dealing here with a testament? And the short answer is that it kind of, it's, it, it's a bit of both and it varies in its kind of the shade of column varies from place to place. So sometimes there are very clear, typical covenants where I will do this and you will do that. But if you don't do this, then I will do that instead. And then there are other times when God simply says, here it is. And here you will see, this is the, this is the first, uh, like proper covenant in the Bible. And this first proper covenant that is made is I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. I will never again destroy the earth by a flood. And it's not two-sided. There is no, I will do this if you don't do such and such. But if you do, then I will do something different. I will flood the earth. God simply gives a promise. And I would like to suggest to you that even though the primary meaning of the word covenant and the most frequent use of the word covenant in the Bible is that of a uh, an agreement between two parties where both of them have some obligations. It's not the primary meaning in the Bible. The primary meaning of all covenants in the Bible is that God steps in and he makes a commitment. And sometimes he spells out what he wants in return and sometimes he does not. And here he doesn't. 
It's the first thing that God makes, first covenant that he makes. <clears throat> and and the, therefore we should always when we when we look at that, we should we should not be tempted to think in terms of a mutual deal ever, even though there is mutuality in it. There are consequences for it. And there are expectations that come from it. But notice, God says, I will do this. And he stops, you know, and that's where he stops. Very, very important. Does anyone want to ask about that or comment on that? Um, where he flood, where the flood came, the scientists say there was water all around the earth at one time. And obviously God let that go to flood the, the earth. Otherwise, he wouldn't be have all that water to do it. So when he couldn't say, he says he's not going to do it again because the water's gone from all around the earth. Well, God can do whatever God wills, wishes to do. So if he no, needs, but he did he, get rid of that, didn't it? Well, technically speaking. Regardless, I mean, if God mm. wanted to create another, uh, you know, enough water to flood the earth, he, he would do it with, that, with no trouble at all. Mm. You know, after all, you know, the... Where did all the water in the world come from in the first place? God created it. So, yeah, yeah it's, 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 it's no obstacle to him at all. But <clears throat> the important thing here isn't that it's not that God isn't saying, uh, you know, oh, gosh, I ran out of water now. So don't worry. I can't I can't do this again. You know, I've, I've, I've run out. I've got no more bullets. Rather, he's saying, I promise I will not do this again. Now, notice also that he is not in any way, he's in no way linking this to what the people are like. He's just saying, because you're better than the people that I, I drowned, because the future looks brighter now, I'm going to change tactics. In other words, it in no way depends on the recipient of the promise. It's entirely, it arises entirely out of the giver. And this is the key thing to when uh, our relationship with God in general, which is here exemplified. We are, we live in a, a world that is governed by law. And the way the world law works is, if this, then that. But if not this, then something else. I give you money, you give me potatoes. You, you know, you, you break the law, we lock you up. You keep the law, we leave you alone. Everything is mutual and there's an exchange going on all the time and it's necessary for the world to function and that's fine. Therefore, we naturally also assume that our relationship with God is the same. You know, it's the whole good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell scenario. That's the natural, that's the natural religious impulse of man. You look at every religion in the world and that's what the message is. Good people get good things, bad people get bad things. And then when bad, good people get bad things, everybody gets in a terrible bother. So what, what, how do we explain this? This doesn't, this doesn't make sense. And you could get the sort of ancient Greek answer, which is, well, the gods are capricious. You never know what, what, what they're going to do. They just, that's just what the gods are like and try to stay out of, out of the way. Or you get the answer of the friends of Job who say, well, you think they're good people, but they must have done something bad. Or you get the clever, clever philosopher who comes along and says, well, it's not actually, the bad thing isn't actually really bad. It's just God's way of kind of making good things come out. Which, 
work sometimes and then you look go to Auschwitz and say well hmm we seem to have run out of what good came out of this and so on so we've got this kind of in our, our natural inclination to think God gives good things to good people bad things to bad people and if he doesn't do that then God is unjust or there's something we're missing here because they must mean a bad people the good people must actually be bad or the bad things must actually be good but that's not the way of the gospel the gospel says that the amazing thing is that bad people happen to bad people and good things happen to bad people those are the two, those are the two categories. Yes. Noah was righteous and, and, and blameless in his generation, but he was no, by no means free from sin as we are about to discover. And yet God says, and nevertheless, I will bless. And that's how the gospel works. And this is one of the, that's the astonishing thing about the, uh, the, 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 like the demands that Jesus makes of his disciples, the whole turning the other cheek business. Somebody forces you walk with him one mile, walk to it. That, you know, Jesus says to his disciples, this is what your heavenly father's like. He rests of sunshine and the rainfall on the evil and the, and, and the just. You be the same. Don't enter into the world, world's way of thinking where good people must be patted on the back and bad people must be punched on the nose. No, just good. You be good like your heavenly father is good. Good be good to, not just to your friends like the Gentiles are. There's no virtue in, in, in being nice to people who are nice to you and who you like. No, Give to those who can't pay you back. Do good to those who persecute you. Pray and, uh, and bless, don't curse. And it's not to say, this is your next kind of, we, here's a, the next kind of um, pro-level demand. You know, you, you're already managing this. Now God's setting up, you know, uh, uh, pushing up the bar because, you know, you, you're even better that you can do even more. But rather, you know, it, it's about set, stepping into the mindset of God. This is how God treats you. And therefore, you're under his care already. So now, now let's, let's now enter into that same life. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Mm. Which is blatantly not the case in the world. I mean, if, if, if you really believe there's more blessed to give than to receive, then I, I will... Let me give you my bank details and you can redirect your <laughs> pension payments or your salary, whatever it is, to my agency and enjoy the blessings. I'll be happy to help you out. <laughs> In the world, that's not the case. But the kingdom of God, it is. And we are first and foremost members of the kingdom of God. And our heavenly father is our example and not anybody else. And here we see the first thing that God does. First thing that God, God uh, Noah steps out and he gives makes an offering but the point isn't that noah gave something to god that wasn't you know that god didn't have but rather noah gave back to god things that god had given to him and said okay i essentially i'm offering to you those things that you placed into my care and therefore entrusted himself to god's care said you know i don't need to hang on to all these animals i can give them back to god and 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 still be blessed and now god blesses noah and his sons and his descendants he will and the whole the rest of the world just because he has decided that he will never again do. And that's our only hope, that God has promised and won't change his mind. In other words, if, if you ever think that the Old Testament law and the New Testament gospel, and well, you're wrong. <laughs> the Old Testament, the gospel's all in the Old Testament. And it just comes to fruition in the New Testament. But God always leads with his giving, which is the gospel. That's the first step.
And then he establishes also a sign of this covenant. So we've got the covenant and its sign. That's always, those things always go together. The covenant and the sign. Uh, can, who would like to read, uh, verses 12, uh, to 17, please? And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and the, ever, and the living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Okay, thank you. First of all, um, just a little... Uh mathematical task how many times does god say between in these verses i'm going to go for four Got four. Any other offers? Any offers? I've got three. Three. Any others? I counted five. Did you? I did. First twelve. Covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature. Yeah. Verse thirteen. Between me and the earth. Verse fifteen. Between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. That's true, yeah. Verse 16, between God and every living creature. And verse 17, between me and all flesh. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Daphne, that means you get the chocolate hobnob today. <laughs> I already have banana cake, so I'm, I'm going to pass on the hob chocolate, but thank you. It's nice nice to be on the receiving end for a change. <laughs> I was running out of chocolate hobnobs already. Uh, <laughs> what does it mean I have set my bow? Very good question. Uh, I have set my established. It's the um, uh, NIV translates. I've set my rainbow. The bow is the yeah, rainbow. Got rainbow. Yes. Rainbow. Is there, is, when, sorry, Abel. I, sorry, I, I, I did wonder if it meant rainbow. But yes, yes, and I'm not. Uh, <clears throat> I have to confess that I didn't do a quick. I didn't quickly check whether there is a separate word that includes the word rain in, in this word between bow and rainbow. Uh, I, uh, so I, I can't, uh, comment, uh, on that. Uh, but, uh, if I just start on the between things, is that you see there's this emphatic God says between me and you and every living creature, between me and the earth, between me and you and every living creature, between God and every living creature, between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is God is making a covenant with the whole of the living world. Yeah. So again, we see this uh, link to uh, link with creation, and we have a covenant 
and we have a sign of the covenant. Now, there is a real parallel here with what will happen later on in Exodus when God makes a covenant with Israel, not with the whole world, but with Israel. And again, we have a cloud and a sign in the cloud. Um, and we have a covenant between me, God says, between God and Israel. And there is a sign of the covenant. Uh, and the, uh, there are signs of the covenant. And the signs of the covenant are chiefly found in what the people of Israel are commanded to do. The, the system of sacrifices and offerings. Those are the signs of the covenant. So because that places it like the obligation on them more than it places the obligation on him. That's the difference with law and gospel. If you like. In between, we have another covenant. There's one covenant between Manoah and Moses. A chocolate hot dog on offer. I'm going to go for Abraham. And it's yours. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, God, covenant between God and Abraham. And mm. there's a sign of the covenant also. Now that's, if you like a halfway, halfway, but kind of, uh, between the sign that God makes here and the God, the signs that accompany the covenant of, uh, or with Moses. The covenant, this, the chief sign of the covenant in the law of Moses in the covenant uh, through Moses in Osina is blood. Blood that is shed, blood of animals that is offered. Uh, the sign of the covenant in, uh, in, in here in Genesis 9, the covenant with Noah is in the, in the clouds because it is a, uh, it, or in the sky because it is for the whole earth. It's like, like visible over, over the whole world. You know, all, all living creatures can see it at once. Uh, the sign of the covenant with Abraham is circumcision, which is a mark made on man. So it's not the, uh, you know, so if like blood is shed, uh, in a very limited sort of fashion, but it's made a mark that is made on the person. And so we kind of see that as we go from Noah to Abraham to Moses, uh, the sign becomes, if, uh, further removed from, uh, the kind of concept of the whole creation. And in the end, you know, the sign of the covenant of Moses is the, it's like alien blood. It's not even, it's not, it's something that is substituted for you. Now, what we see, of course, in the, in the ultimate covenant that God makes with, with the world, which is a covenant made by the blood of Jesus, we have the sign of the covenant, which is the blood, alien blood of Jesus made, but it's, it's his blood. Which he sheds for all of us and in which all the nations of the world are blessed and the whole earth is blessed. In fact, all creation is blessed. And so in the, the covenant that God makes with, through Jesus, which has as his sign the blood, you know, God, Jesus, you know, this is the, this, this, uh, cup is the New Testament or New Covenant in my blood. So the sign of that covenant is the blood of Jesus, which comes, comes out of his side, but which is applied to us. And through which all creation will be released from bondage to sin. So the, like the three covenants, Ab- Noah, Abraham, Moses are all, ra- all find their fulfillment in Jesus. Um, so that's, 
but there's this, you know, God does this and he makes deal between him and every living creature of the whole earth. And he gives us the sign of the covenant, the rainbow. I was highly amused, I have to say, when the rainbow became the, uh, the symbol of solidarity with the NHS. Last year, remember, you had lots of rainbows. I don't know, I, I don't know if any of you have a rainbow in your window, uh, supporting the NHS, but there are lots of rainbows. And somebody wrote an article in a newspaper complaining very loudly about the fact that this, this symbol had been stolen. Because of course, until then, and it still is in, in, in many ways, the rainbow, as everybody knows, is chiefly, its main purpose is to be a symbol of God's rain. No. God's promise. Nope. Oh, the current. Yes. LGBT. LGBT yeah. LGBTQ plus. Oh, for goodness. Equality. And that has become, and it has become the, the symbol of that. Mm. And I have to say that I was, I was rightly amused when somebody wrote a, a, a very angry uh, column in a newspaper saying about, you know, talk about how this, uh, the, the, the symbol of LGBT, whatever, uh, equality has been appropriated by the, uh, by the NHS. And I said, well, Somebody appropriated before that, uh, because of course the, the the rainbow is the first sign of the covenant, and it is the sign of God's favor. And you can every time, next time you see a rainbow, don't go looking for gold or unicorns, uh, and don't just admire the beach. But remember, this is yes, it it the rainbow. You can only see a rainbow when it's raining. Mm. Now, once oh, upon a time, it rained so that the whole earth was flooded. Hmm. Next time you see a rainbow, so it's raining, yes, but we're not going to be, we're not going to be destroyed by God for our sin. And that's the great thing that God makes a promise. He doesn't, and he doesn't make conditional on us getting our act together. He simply makes an unconditional unilateral promise. So next time you see a rainbow, you can thank God that he will not destroy us for our sins. He has he has come up with an with another plan, a different kind of flood, which takes away our sins but leaves us alive. <clears throat> and then, uh, and sorry, just at verse sixteen it says it's an everlasting covenant. It's an everlasting covenant. It's not. God is not going to change his mind. He's not going to revoke. And then we come to the final, if you like, the coda, the kind of what happened next uh, bit of the story. But before we do, has anyone got anything they'd like to ask or comment on um, about um, what we have covered so far? Because we, there's a quite a, an abrupt change of, uh, change of tone now uh, in the story. There's um, an Anglican ministry sadly passed, um, Alec McTeer, you've probably heard of, mm. and he write, he's an Old Testament scholar, and he once commented upon this passage, and he likened it to God putting up, God's putting up his own uh, war bow in the sky, and saying no longer am I going to attack attack man in this particular way, but his bow is in the sky to remind that he is a God of peace. But then someone else commented that the arrow 
in the bow is pointing upwards rather than downwards on man and likened it to the fact of, you know, if there's judgment or wrath to come, God it's pointed at God in terms of long term, in terms of the gospel of Christ will die for our sins. So it was just a little observation, a little illustration that I quite liked um, about the, the war bow is no longer pointing at, at man, but it actually has been pointed at God. Mm. But God is bringing peace uh, in the gospel. Yeah, I mean, the, the word bow, it, it, it does, it means both things. Uh, it means both, you know, it can be used of the rainbow, it can be used of an ordinary bow. Um, it's, it certainly is a, I'm not 100% convinced that the, that the second part of that illustration is actually in the text, but of course it's. No, it's, it's not in the text. But it's a good it's, point. It's a, it's a, it's a preacher's point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it preaches well. It, it does. Preaches well, but it does. I mean, it's like, I, maybe I, where well, I, I like to think of, or have been thinking of it more is that you can see that when you see that, that God has hung up his bow. Yeah. It's up there and it's not, it's not in use. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, and my, uh, my, my grandfather had, uh, various old army issue rifles in his collection, but they were all on the wall. So he was never mm-hmm. frightened properly. He never walked into his study and found that he was pointing one at you. They were all safely hanging off a hook. And that's how we like them. And, and God has hung up his bow as well. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. Am I right in thinking that now God knows there's going to be sinners coming along after? Because he's he knows that Noah is all right, but he's not said anything about... He, he must realise that sinners are on their way now. Well, they're all sinners. I mean, they've been sinners. There've been nothing but sinners ever since Adam and Eve. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's accepted there's going to be more for the minute, there hasn't he? At this stage, at every stage, it's not just uh-huh. at this stage. It's this is this is where God has, uh, God has cleansed the earth, but then he says, and he won't do it again. Which is uh, that's what I was saying earlier. This is not in any way uh, God's way of assuming that there will be no more sinful people. Noah is is sinful too. Mm. Uh, he walks with God, which doesn't mean that he's sin free. Rather, his relationship with God is right, despite the, of, despite his sinful nature. Because this is what, well, this is what exactly what happens next. I mean, this is, this is Noah, who was a righteous man who walked with God and his sons, uh, verses 18, uh, to the end. Uh, could we have a, a reader, please, from 18 to the end? Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk, and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment laid it on both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces their faces were turned away and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. 
May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Thank you. So there's a rather rather strange uh, conclusion to the story of Noah here. Uh, I think it belongs in that category, that box that has and the label says, I wasn't expecting that. Um, where is Ararat? On top of a mountain. It Turkey. is a mountain. Where? Turkey. Yes, the Turkey, Turkish-Armenian border. And Turks think it's in Turkey and Armenians claim it's in Armenia. But that region, kind of the wider region is called Armenia, although it belongs to uh, the jurisdiction of Turkey. I learned today, only this morning when I was checking this up, that apparently vines originate in Armenia. Did they? Apparently. Mm. That's what my book told me. Must be true. So uh, the best vine comes from Armenia then? <laughs> does that doesn't... Uh, I don't know. I never drank Armenian wine. No. They have been making wine in that region a lot longer than the French have. Right. Um, and it's, uh, I, I, uh, I get a bottle of Georgian wine, which is not far from Armenia, every year at Christmas. And I have to say, very, very nice indeed. Oh, good. Um, so it's yeah. Australian wine. Australian yeah. wine is nouveau. They, it's, it doesn't really, uh, we, we didn't approve of that. It's, it, it's very, uh, <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, they they only just discovered it recently. I mean, if, if you haven't been making wine for at least two thousand years, I'm not going to talk to you. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, what I'd like you to do is, if you could spend uh, maybe a minute uh, in and and see how much you can find in here in terms of themes or details, things that happen here that have already happened in Genesis thus far. We found anything? Five. Five, okay. Well, give us one. Um, Okay, the first one is verse 18. What I've seen... Uh, is the sons of Noah went forth from the ark, um, who, sorry, who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And in the Genesis, early Genesis, the um, Adam and Eve were, they left the Garden of Eden, which to me is the, the place of, of safety, of protection. And they went out from, from Eden. And here is Noah and his sons leaving the place of safety. Okay, thank you. Does anybody well, else find anything? Would Adam being naked and him being naked be of them? Ah, yes, very good. Nakedness. <laughs> very good. Any Anything else? Verse 20 about Noah being a farmer. Go on. And Adam, um, when he was uh, being sent from Eden, he was... Um, Instructed to till the ground. Yes, very good. Even before that, what about before that? On the scene. Yes, until um, he was given um, the dominion over the the animals and the. No, I mean earlier than Adam going out. 
before that. Um, that links to this verse, verse 20. I think so. Oh, by tending the garden. By tend, God, God gave him, God gave to Adam the garden to tend. Before that. Oh. <laughs> oh, you're making your work today, Cynthia? Uh, <laughs> where they didn't have anything on and didn't know about it until they took yeah, the that, that's a that's point that's the one that Avril pointed out, yes, and they'd be naked, yes. You're right. What does you know do in verse twenty? Doesn't tend the garden. He began to be a farmer and he planted. He planted. Anyone do any? Anyone else done any planting so far in Genesis? I think God planted. God planted yeah. the garden in Eden. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And that garden, and that was called. It's called a garden, but it's full of fruit. And Noah planted a vineyard. So okay. there is that. There is this link. Anything else? Um, verse twenty-five talks about cursed be Canaan. Whereas in the Garden of the Garden of Eden, from then on, there was the curses as the ground. It shall bring up um, briars and whatever, brambles. Yes, so there's a curse there, yes. This, by the way, verse 25 is the first curse recorded in the Bible that is uttered by a man or human. Why was Canaan cursed? We'll come to that. We'll come to that. It's a very good question, which <laughs> the answer is not a straightforward one. Uh, just around the nakedness issue, there's, together with the question of nakedness comes also the question of coverings. Of what, sorry? Covering. Covering. Yes. So we have in the, the covering that Adam and Eve make for themselves and then the covering that God makes for them. And here we have the whole question, uh, also, what do you do with uh, you know, when, when Noah is naked and he, there's a covering for him. So there are, the, the point I'm making here, other than making you do some work for a change, <coughs> uh, is to point out that there is, there's a very strong, there are strong similarities, not with Genesis 1 here, but Genesis 3. And with the, uh, with the, uh, account of the fall. So just as, uh, you know, Noah is presented as a new Adam in the first part of this chapter, and he receives the same commands and blessings as Adam did at creation. Likewise, also as the new Adam, he also goes, uh, has a, has an experience, like fall-like experience that has consequences for coming generations. And so we have Noah. Uh, and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And, and as David pointed out, they kind of go, they now go out from the direct, uh, providence and provision of God, um, into the world. And Noah becomes a man of the soil, a farmer and plants a vineyard. And then we're told that he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Now there's been a huge amount of discussion amongst, uh, uh Bible scholars about what exactly uh, this mean, given what happens, and you know, is this some kind of euphemism for something even worse than it already is? How bad is this or not? Um, 
and uh, I'm I'm very much of the school of thought that if it's not in the text, we should park it in, you know, put it in a box called speculation and and put a lid, lid on it, and then only go there for entertainment rather than for learning. Um, there is no suggestion here of any any other impropriety, even though drunkenness, generally speaking, leads to impropriety. There is not directly implied here or directly stated rather here that there's anything wrong with the drunkenness of Noah. It becomes apparent from the consequences that this drunkenness is, is a bad thing, uh, which is a good opportunity for me to remind you that the Bible states that you should not get drunk. <laughs> okay, well, there we go. <laughs> and when you do, you are going against the word of God. So drunkenness is a bad thing. Don't be drunk with wine, be, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Those are the choices. Um, Bible doesn't particularly explain why uh, you shouldn't, but it doesn't need to. It's quite easy to figure out if one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control, then it, it becomes quite obvious why you shouldn't get drunk. Because there's a person that goes when you get drunk is self-control. Uh, <clears throat> so um, there you go. Don't be like Noah. Okay, stay sober. Um, now, he, he became drunk. And he lay uncovered in his tent. So exactly what he had done, we don't know. But he clearly either fell asleep or passed out. And he did so in such a way as to expose his uh, private parts uh, to all the world to see. Anybody who peeked into the tent. Now, ever since... Sorry? What was the problem with that? Well, ever since... They didn't have loads and loads of clothes. And presumably, if they had to wash clothes or something... They wouldn't be able to wear them at the same time. You know, I can't get into this. I can understand that it's meaning something else, but I can't understand why seeing someone naked is so problematic. Well, let's start with by saying it is. <laughs> okay, that's the first thing to say. It clearly is. And um, and this goes right back to again to Genesis three. That as a consequence of the fall, nakedness has become a cause of shame. And there's a reason why we wear clothes. And it's not just that it's chilly in Britain. You go anywhere in the world and people wear clothing. However little clothing people wear, you always find that certain parts of the body are covered. Even even if, if like uh, tribes that go around nearly naked, seemingly never go around naked but wear some sort of loincloths or pouches or whatever it is to cover uh, the genitals. And that's, that's, you know, yeah, you, you might be, you know, you, you might be a, sort of a, a naturist, but at heart and, and would, would quite happily go around wearing nothing at all in the, in the beautiful balmy sunshine of April. Uh, but that's, that, that makes you exceptional and not the norm. Um, and, you know, the, it's, it's very interesting to observe that, uh, from a certain age, it's, it's like shame, uh, and embarrassment about nudity and nakedness, uh, seems to be one of those things that children grow into in, almost universally, um, at a certain stage. You know, it, it varies a little bit in, in their cultural differences, uh, but sort of, um, you know, I don't know. My my experience is that somewhere around the ages of eight or nine, uh, children, if you like, lose lose that sense of 
of freedom and begin to wish not to be seen uncovered um, as, as a rule. Mike. Um, just a, an, a, a little sideline. Um, during um, visits to South Sea Islands uh, in the late 50s, early 60s, uh, we went to one island which hadn't seen uh, a, a, a British warship since uh, Blyde had been there in the bounty. And the chief, who normally was quite normal for those islands, made all the ladies wear half coconut shells up top. Well, there you go. He made them dress, in other words. Yes. Yeah. For the, for the white man. Yeah, for the white man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. But I mean, even I mean, it's quite common uh, in in warm climates in in sort of older cultures. Aborigines, uh, for instance. Sorry. Aborigines. Yes. Oh, all sorts of cultures for for uh, men and women to uh, go around topless. Yeah. It's very, very, very uncommon in any culture for men or women uh, to walk around uh, with their groin exposed. No, that's true. That's yeah. true. And he wasn't walking talking... around, though. He was lying down. No, but, yeah, but I'm, I'm just making a general point here. Okay. <laughs> a general point. Now, if you are supposed to be covered up and you get drunk and you fall asleep or pass out such that your skirts hitch up and you are lay exposed, regardless of, of, of what, you know, one's private feelings and personal feelings about uh, nudity might be. I didn't, I hope it's not difficult to see that this is, you know, as a, as a, if like a public scene is, is one of embarrassment and shame. Yes. It's, not, it's not a dignified thing. And so if you are, you know, it, it sometimes happens, you know, it, you might, you might sometimes see this if you go visit uh, people in hospital or in an old people's home where people aren't in, in, in aren't fully compromised. You know, that they, they, they might be kind of, if like more exposed than they would not be if they weren't, uh, ill or, or in a, in another way, frail state. And the usual thing to do is to, you know, pull the covers or the sheet up or whatever, adjust the clothing, whatever it is, because you find people in a position that they wouldn't normally be because of their infirmity or because of their state of mind. And Noah yeah. is clearly portrayed here as having been, being, exposed because of his drunkenness yes and therefore you know he's he's in his tent and so far as he's in his tent all by himself there's no problem in that sense the problem comes from the entry of ham his son he saw the nakedness of his father which presumably is just he went to the tent and it was there that wasn't the problem yet What's the problem? What does he do about it? He spoke to his brothers about that. He told his brothers about it. So instead of covering his father's nakedness, either literally or at least, if you like, metaphorically in that he kept it to himself and did not expose it further, if like did not expose his father's exposure, he goes and tells his brothers. He turns it into a matter of news and gossip, and the, we land here squarely in the uh, in the uh, 
uh, remit of the Eighth Commandment. If you recall, the Eighth Commandment, which says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And the Catechism explains it more uh, broadly like that. We should fear and love God so we don't tell lies about our neighbor, betray him, slander him, or give him a bad reputation, but defend him, speak well of him, and put the best construction in everything. And this, in this, in, in going in, instead of covering it, uh, and uh, covering his father's, if you like, a compromising or, or undignified, or one might say, at least in the ancient world, shameful state, Ham makes it a public matter. Instead of covering it, he exposes it. This, by the way, is the reason why, uh, <clears throat> if a church's discipline is functioning properly, if any priest, pastor, any minister is found to be revealing what they hear in confession, uh, they are thereby immediately suspended and defrocked, never to, uh, never to hold the office again. Because again, you know, one of the functions of the ministry is to hear people's confession of sin and to absolve them or to withhold forgiveness in Jesus' name, as we heard last Sunday in John 20. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. But it's a, you know, it's, it's a, a private and confidential situation where essentially members, you know, Christians come and they expose their sin and their shame. And the only thing that a pastor is supposed to do with us is to cover it. Cover it with the forgiveness of Christ. And the moment that they go out and they expose it, they fall under this curse. And it's a really very, very, very important thing. Now, what does God do about the shameful nakedness of Adam and Eve? He clothes them. Yeah, clothes them with animal skins. I mean, they try to cover themselves and they don't do very well. So God covers their shame. God covers their nakedness. Now, Ham does the very opposite. He doesn't cover it. He simply goes out and he reports. He goes and gossips it. And therefore, and then his brothers, having been uh, informed of the situation, they do the godly thing, the godlike thing. And they go, they took a garment. So they provide the covering. Laid it on both their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. In other words, they knew that there was a situation and they did not even lay eyes on it. They were fastidious about not adding to their father's shame. But rather covering it up and covering and taking away the indignity. Now, this is not a general thing about whether uh, adult children should ever see their adult fathers you know, adult sons should ever see their other fathers naked or not, and, and coming from a nation that is particularly uh, keen on its soreness, um, I might have a personal view on this, but the, uh, the, the point here is, is what's going on in this particular situation. And this particular situation is all to do with shame and what you do about a person's shameful state. Ham exposes it further. Uh, Shem and Japheth. Do what God did to Adam and Eve. They take a garment and cover up their shameful nakedness. And they make sure that they don't see it. They 
act in every way to diminish and to take away shame rather than to add to it. And this is what the Eighth Commandment means. This is our task as well. You know, not just literally, but also, you know, but metaphorically, if you like. That when we come across, when we know of the shame of our neighbor, if you know the truth about them and the shameful, every atom in our body is, is desirous to gossip and to spread rumors because everybody loves to gossip. Everybody likes a juicy story. And instead, we are to cover up our neighbor's shame. Not to make it, no, not to expose it. Don't tell lies or betray or slander or in any way hurt a person's reputation, but defend, speak well and put the best construction on everything. This is most unnatural to us. Everybody likes a sensation and the entire news media industry works on our love of sensation. I mean, when did you last read a piece of news that was just utterly mundane and, and, and sort of ordinary. We all like extraordinary things. That's why we hear about, you know, like CNN has been, I, I learned recently the CNN, the American cable news network, they have for the last months and months and months, I don't know how many months, they have had permanently on their screen a little ticker showing the current number of, you know, current total number of deaths of COVID in America. And what possible value does that have for ordinary newsreader? Uh, oh, sorry, somebody, you know, uh, watcher of news. The answer is none, except that it provokes fear. But isn't it fascinating that, you know, if, if a bus drives off a cliff, it gets in the news. But if it leaves Preston bus station and arrives safely in London, Victoria, nobody notices. Right? We all like a sensation. We all like something that is out of the ordinary, stands out. We all like a scandal. And we as Christians are called to do the, the opposite, not to expose, but to cover up. Because that's what God does with our sins. That's Jesus' mode of operating. We bear each other's burdens, and we forgive one another, and we defend one another. If Ham did this, why does Cain... Well, that's what I want to know. We're coming to that. We're coming to that. <clears throat> So when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, then he hath uttered the curse. Uh, Ham is the youngest son. Canaan is the youngest son, by the way. Of of Ham? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was his father who did it. Correct. <laughs> curse be Canaan, a servant of servants or slave of slaves or lower slave. Really, the word servant, it actually means... I mean, the Greek Bible already translated as servant to servant, but really the, the Hebrew word means both slave and servant. So it's most likely the slave of slaves. I, you, you can't get more slave like that, that, uh, shall be. And blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So Shem and Japheth are blessed. Canaan is cursed. Now, why Canaan? And if I answer by saying that, if you pick up any modern commentary on this, you will spend at least half a page going through all the different explanations that be given to this. In other words, there isn't a clear cut answer. The Bible doesn't actually tell us. One possible exp- explanation, and I think this is a, uh, at least helps us to understand a little bit, is that Cain, that Ham has already been blessed by the, by now. 
God has already blessed him and therefore he can't be cursed. Noah can't curse someone that God has blessed. And so if you like the curse, uh, passes down. Ah. But it is not explained. And so we are left with the fact of it as opposed to the explanation of it. However, if he is called Cain and he's the father of the Canaanites, this does, I mean, there is, it, it, it made sense, uh, when, to the Israelites in the land of Canaan, because in, you know, in, in comparison with the law of Moses, the people of Canaan, the Canaanites, were notoriously licentious. In other words, they, 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 they engaged in, uh, shameful practices. And that was kind of their reputation amongst God's people. That unlike the people of Israel, and when the people of Israel, uh, the, unlike the people of Israel, they w- they did not know God's law, and they engaged in shameful sexual and other practices. And one of the signs always was, you know, if you look at the history of Israel, uh, are especially uh, well, already during, but especially after the Exodus and the conquest of Promised Land, is that whenever they fall into idolatry, one of the first things that goes with them is also um, it, it one that comes along is that they they fall into shameful practices, into shameful, especially sexual immorality, which was the hallmark of the Canaanites. You know, it was, it was a land full of uh, fertility rights. You know, if you read your Old Testament, you you uh, after especially after the, uh, the period of King David and Solomon, um, you come across things like uh, uh, Asherah. Asherah poles and things like that are forever being cut down or erected depending on who's king and what's going on. Now that was a, those were fertility, you know, these are fertility cults. And fertility cults were always, almost always associated with sexual immorality and other shameful practices. So the kind of connection between Canaan and shame was uh, almost proverbial uh, amongst Israelites. And this Kind of is the, if like the explanation behind it. The interesting thing is that Ham has already been blessed by God. And a little bit later on, uh, God tells Abraham that all the nations of the world should be blessed through Abraham. So even though Canaan is cursed by Noah, God doesn't curse him. Noah does. God already has a blessing. For even Canaan. And that's the kind of, so, so this isn't, this isn't the final word about Canaan or the Canaanites. God has already prepared redemption and blessing for them. So I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I haven't answered your question because I, no, that's okay. That that is the answer. That's the only answer I can give. Yeah. Uh, It's, Maybe, I don't know, but maybe, uh, uh, Noah had some idea of what God, what Canaan would do. I don't suppose he was a fortune teller, but, uh, it, it worked out in the end that, uh, he wasn't an all, altogether nice person, was he? Well, Noah clearly, I mean, I think it's reassuring for us because it's, it's a temptation for us to see, see the great heroes of faith in the Bible. Which we, mm. we know that, oh, well, I know that I'm not. I don't know. <laughs> if you think you are, I can, I can, I can disabuse you of that very quickly. <laughs> um, you know, and think that the, the sort of, 
Abrahams and Isaacs and Jacobs and you know, these are the great heroes of faith, and we can only look look up to them. We can never be that. No. And the great comfort for us is that they were just as terrible as we are, and yet God blessed them and God raised them up in this way. And so yeah. there's hope for you and me as well. And I think I I personally find that far more helpful than to think, you know, the thing that made them exemplary was their faith, not their faithfulness. They trusted in God, even though, and they needed to, just like you and I. And that we can do because we have been given the gift of faith too by the Holy Spirit and the means by which our faith grows. The other interesting thing that that has, over which much ink has been spilled to not that much uh, noticeable um, uh, effect is what is meant by verse 27. May God enlarge Japheth. That's a pun, by the way. Uh, because the, in Hebrew, uh, to enlarge, may God enlarge, or may, may, may God enlarge is, uh, uh, is pronounced Japheth, and, uh, Japheth is pronounced, uh, guess what? Yafeth, Yafeth. So it's a, you know, may God enlarge Japheth is kind of, it's, is a play on the name. And let him dwell in the tents of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. So Canaan shall be servant of Shem. And then the blessing on Japheth is to dwell in the tents of Shem, the eldest brother. And remember that Shem is the, is, is a pre, uh, is a, a father of a line from which Abraham is born. So Abraham's the descendant of Shem, which is why we have the words like Semitic and Semite. That comes from the word Shem. So Israel Israel is a descend, our descend, Israelites are descendants of Shem. And the curse on Canaan is that Canaan shall be the servant of Shem. The blessing on Shem is that, uh, the Lord shall be the God of Shem and Canaan shall be his servant. And the blessing on Japheth is that he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, i.e. that he will share in the blessings of Shem. So God blesses, this is the first time that God blesses someone by bringing them under the blessing given to someone else. And this is then what continues to happen. Think of Ruth, who's a Moabite woman and yet comes to be sharing in the blessings of Israel by being placed in the tent of Boaz. And then uh, we have uh, Joseph's brothers are being ble- are blessed and Jacob himself blessed by being bre- brought into the house uh, over which Joseph is master in the prophets either through the prophets and particularly the prophet Isaiah there's this promise of the Gentiles shall be blessed I mean already Abraham is told that all the nations of the world shall be blessed through him and that the Gen- the the Gentiles shall be blessed how shall they be blessed they shall come and come to Zion and worship the God of Israel and then this is what happens in the New Testament that we are brought the nations are brought, not given their own blessing, but they're brought to share in the blessings of Israel, which is what we are enjoying. And Japheth is the first one to be, the first one in that pattern. He's brought, he's blessed by coming to share in the blessings of Shem, uh, which are then be what, what happens next, uh, in Genesis is that these spell, uh, these will be spelled out, um, as, as, as the, we pick up the story of Abraham, who is a descendant of Shem. 
So that brings us to the conclusion of that particular episode. And then we just get the final uh, final conclusion. Noah lived after this by 350 years and died at the age of 950 years. By the way, notice, if he lived 950 years, how long did the whole flood episode uh, last, you know, from entering into the ark to coming out again? Wasn't it about a year? It was about a year. Mm. He lived 949 years without the flood. Oh. Mm. Um, it was a memorable year, no doubt. Still remembered by us today. Mm. And full of difficulties and challenges and however long it took him to build the ark as well. Mm. It was a fraction of the time that he simply lived and enjoyed God's blessing. Mm. And that again is a pattern that repeats itself, not only in the Bible, but also in the in our lives, you know, when we go through the valley of valley of uh, affliction, that you know the, the time slows down when you're suffering, doesn't it? Mm. Days get longer and so on. Yep. You're younger, but, time but, is longer. But in the in the time is faster. In the grand scheme of things, you know, when we look back on our lives, or when especially when we look back or look over our lives. From the perspective of the God's eternal promises, they begin to vanish into the vastness of the blessings, even though at the the time they are hard and and genuinely difficult to bear. So 949 years not in the ark is what Noah did. Which brings us to the conclusion of this chapter and of the time that we have available today. Um, we covered quite a lot of ground. Yeah. Well done. And you even got to do some work on your own, some classwork. So well done there too. Any final, uh, thoughts? Yeah. <clears throat> what, what, what the verse is really just, um, jumping out at me and it's not time to talk about it, but verse 25, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. Shall he be to his brothers? And I'm just, I, I go straight to the gospels and I think, well, who is a servant of servant to his brothers? You know, and it's Christ, Jesus Christ. Um, and I just see Christ, his ministry is coming down in terms of humility to be a servant of servants to, to us, uh, and taking upon himself the, the curse on the cross. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd love to be it talked about more. But that's just what's kind of jumping out at me and verse 25. You know, I, I, I actually genuinely am denied about it, whether to go down that particular route because it's so rich and fruitful. I was concerned about the passage of time, but you give me no choice. My hand is behind my back, so I'm going to have to say something. <laughs> go for it. <laughs> uh, how is Christ portrayed in the scriptures for us? He emptied himself, made his mind, he took on the form of a slave. And so he became, as, as you say, Christ became for us a slave. Of, you know, we are slaves of sin and Christ became our slave, serving us. He went right to the bottom. He became last in order, in order to become first. And he calls us also, you know, if you want to be first, you must be last of all. If you ever wants to be master, you must be, become the slave of all. And so he did. And moreover, scripture tells us that Christ, uh, became a curse for us. And so, uh, as you point out, this really is an image and a picture of uh, 
you know, the, the, the curse, whatever curse there is on earth is, is cancelled out in Christ who takes the curse upon himself. Now you can't be cursed, uh, by anything or anyone on earth so long as you're Christ because he has already borne that. He has already taken it upon himself and he's already brought it to an end. And which is why, you know, we are, we are blessed. We say we are blessed when, you know, when the, uh, you know, when, when we, uh, have a financial windfall or we, we have some, some, something, uh, joyous happening in our lives as though I'm, I'm so blessed. But actually the fact is we are permanently blessed in all circumstances and there is no curse. In a way he says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has taken, put away the curse and therefore the only thing that's left is blessing. And so when God uttered a blessing on Noah and his sons and therefore his descendants and therefore all mankind, that blessing is brought to us because the curse that attaches itself to sinners has also been dealt with by himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's very nice to see you all in Bible study again. It's nice. It's, it's good to do this. We will continue, uh, this time next week, God willing, as we get into chapter 10. The, the original plan has been to go to the end of chapter 11. Um, and, and then either take up something else, uh, or if you, if you like, we can obviously carry on and, and work our way through more, more of Genesis because there's, you know, there's 50 chapters, so there's a plenty to be looking at in, in Genesis alone. But, uh, for now, for now, we will close and carry on, uh, from verse 10, uh, next time. So let's, uh, conclude with, uh, prayer. Father, we thank you for your firm and unchanging promises which you have made, uh, to our fathers in the faith. We thank you for the blessing that is ours, not only through Noah, but above all the blessing that comes to us through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have redemption, who covers our sins and has removed our shame and placed us into uh, everlasting glory in your kingdom. Guide us so that we always live by faith in him, always seek uh, the cover of his blood and having been thus loved, also love one another and care for one another covering each other's shame and sin and building each other up in faith and in hope. So may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. 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 Amen.